I'm Rex Salisbury, and this is the Cambrian FinTech Podcast. On this show, we talk to the founders, operators, and investors who are shaping the future of financial services. I am very excited for today's guest, Laura Speakerman, who is the co-founder of Alloy. We're going to cover her journey from everything from interning in microfinance to narrowly avoiding becoming a career lawyer to then ending up in the much more glamorous role of a fintech founder building crucial infrastructure. So Alloy is the global identity decisioning platform that helps banks and fintechs do a bunch of different things, onboarding, transaction monitoring. They've got 300 plus customers and 300 plus employees. Their last round valued them at over a billion dollars. But getting here was by no means easy. Building infrastructure in fintech almost never is. So we're going to cover both the successes, but also some of the bumps in the road. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. Laura, so glad to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Rex. I'm excited to be here. I want to start all the way back at the very beginning and discover how you broke into fintech in the first place, because I believe your first job was an internship with the Brooklyn DA doing forensic accounting. And then a few years later, you were thousands of miles away in Nairobi as the first employee at a payment startup. So walk me through what your early career looked like. So I always thought I would go to law school. If you didn't want to be a doctor, you didn't want to go into banking, you go and be a lawyer. That was sort of what I, I thought. I was on that track. So my summer, my first summer internship was at the Brooklyn DA's office. And I got lucky. It was actually a pretty fun internship, I think, as far as sort of paralegal type internships go. Yeah. I did do forensic accounting, which is, I think now in retrospect, sounds cooler than it really was. Uh, <laughs> one of my projects was to sit inside a family-owned deli company and have to try to match invoices for like coleslaw and potato salad. And the only perk was that we got to eat some of the coleslaw and potato salad for free. And so I kind of stayed on that track. And after college, I was working for a criminal defense firm. And it was 2008. So this is the beginning of the financial crisis. And it was a really interesting job, actually. So it was working with white-collar criminal defendants, for the most part, largely financial crime. So you were helping the bad guys, in other words. The allegedly bad guys. Right. Allegedly bad guys. <laughs> But I actually got to know a lot of them and really liked a lot of them, which surprised me most of all. I also liked working some of the cases. We worked on a Bernie Madoff-related case. It was really interesting. And then I got to learn a lot about financial services and financial products because we were, at the time, like credit default swaps were one of the big topics. And I would spend my time trying to understand what those financial products yeah. were. And so I got sort of a crash course in parts of finance. I would definitely not yeah. say I really learned about finance, but just little elements of it. And I really enjoyed it. One of the best ways to learn about finance is actually when things break, because it's in yeah. the breaking, you understand how they're built, how they work, how they don't work. Totally. And I went from credit default swaps being like a headline or an acronym even, I don't think I knew what the letters meant, to really understanding like, yeah, no kidding, this happened. Can you imagine? Yeah. Like, of course, <laughs> this turned out the way it did. So I spent a couple years at the firm, applied to law school, got in, started looking at how much I have to spend to attend law school and realized like, I really better want to do this. So I started thinking about it and I said, let me just like take a year off instead and go figure out what else I would want to do. And I 
had to start from scratch. And in college, I'd studied abroad in West Africa and Senegal, and I had written my senior thesis based on that experience there around microfinance and the proliferation of small dollar loans. And in 2010, when I was in this pause and trying to figure out what to do, I said, like, well, I really liked microfinance. I thought it was really interesting. And now cell phones have are ubiquitous. Cell phones are everywhere. Everyone has one, even in these other markets that were sort of behind the U.S. I was so lucky to find these two founders who had just done an accelerator program, and they were moving to Kenya. And you met them in New York? I met them online. <laughs> I think they were in Colorado. They were doing an incubator in Colorado, the Unreasonable Institute. I said, hey, let me just join you guys. Like, I'm super interested in microfinance. I'm also really interested in entrepreneurship. Like, I'm sure I can help you do something. I don't know what it is, but let me help you. And they said, okay. You know, they just were happy someone would be willing to work with them. So we all went to Kenya. We lived together. And we started this company. And it was software to make M-Pesa, which I'm sure a lot of listeners know about, to make M-Pesa useful for businesses. The initial use case was microfinance. People had to travel, you know, five to six to seven hours in a matatu to collect their loan or to repay their loan weekly or biweekly. It's like a huge burden. M-Pesa made all of that possible where you could now repay your loan electronically over your phone. Yep. And so we said that's a use case for barbershops and grocery stores and anyone to be able to collect and disperse payments with M-Pesa. So it was software to, to layer on top of that. And that's really what got me started in fintech and fintech infrastructure in particular. Got it. So you kind of got the initial taste doing a microfinance internship, did some tours of duty in and around law and financial services. Yeah. And then I think very wisely decided you did not want to go <laughs> to law school. <laughs> now I'm very grateful I didn't go. I think it yeah. was the right choice for me. So anyways, you, you ended up in Nairobi. You worked with this company, which was Copo Copo. Is that right? Copo Copo, yeah. Doing kind of the business side of M-Pesa, M-Pesa being the mobile money network in Kenya that has something like 98% coverage of consumers and is still growing quite a bit. But then you came back to the U.S. So what happened after Copo Copo? Came back to the U.S. I joined an investment firm based in San Francisco that at the time was independent. Now it's part of Goldman Sachs to do impact investing. So I'd been really interested in my experience in Kenya. Yep. I joined as the firm was expanding their sort of footprint in terms of investments internationally. And so I got to work on their fund strategy with a little bit of direct investing experience in emerging markets primarily. And I was just got really lucky that the client I worked for there really was interested in financial services and technology and sort of the intersection there. So I spent the next two and a half, three years looking at primarily funds to invest in and some companies. Yep. And it was really fun for about two of those years. And for various reasons, the last year was not not fun. But one of the things I really learned was I would travel and I would meet entrepreneurs and early stage fund managers, which was great. But I would always be like jealous of the operators I would meet and just be sitting there like learning about their business and how they spend their days and what their challenges are. And I just want to like, I want to do this myself. Like it looks so much more fun. And increasingly we were moving to being a $1 million check and a $100 million fund doing whatever. It just didn't feel like we were actually having an impact. And I certainly wasn't having an impact. Yep. And so I left and said, I want to go join an early stage fintech company in the infrastructure space. This is 2014. Yep. And I found Tommy, my current co-founder. Tommy was 
pitching. I saw his video. It must have been on TechCrunch or some tech news. I saw a video of him pitching an ACH payments product. And they were like three or four people. And I kind of same deal as what I'd done before. I emailed him and said, hey, can I join you guys? This looks really interesting. And I'm lucky enough. He said, yes, the company turned out to be a disaster, but it's where I got to meet him and my other co-founder. Yeah. But big life lessons is surprising things can come of cold emails. I am a big believer in cold emails. Same with sort of like early business development at Alloy. Cold emails can work. So you met Tommy, this company was Knox Payments. And then what led you into the identity world from your experience working on payments? So we're working on ACH payments and primarily sort of as an onboarding thing, like you need to get your money into the brokerage account or the wallet or whatever. Yep. And what we discovered there was that ACH was a challenge for sure, still is a challenge. But one of the biggest challenges and potentially bigger challenges was identity. That if you're a fintech company, if you want to launch and build great fintech products, of course you have to safely onboard people, right? You have to meet your compliance requirements. And doing that is just not that easy. It seems like it should be easy. At the time, we thought it should be easy. We looked around for like a KYC API. There must be this. It can't be that hard to check someone's identity. It's really hard to do. This is 2014, keep in mind, almost nine years ago now, which is it seems crazy. That's almost almost a decade. But even then, like Stripe was in the market, Plaid was getting started. There were APIs. We looked around like there's got to be an API for this. Yeah. And there wasn't. And so we realized like solving these identity problems are critical to being able to launch and build and grow the next generation of really good digital financial services products, which again, even in 2014, we knew would exist because we were already using some of them at that point. So that's the core idea and insight. I would love to hear about the early kind of innings of Alloy, how you guys decided to actually start a company, and then what the very first versions of the product looked like and who the very first customers were. So we decided to start this together. And I wouldn't even say we thought it was a really big opportunity like TAM. I think what we saw was a few fintech product people or developers, like early stage companies especially, that struggled with this problem a lot. And we started talking to them about it. I spent you know, a huge amount of developer hours trying to solve this problem, or it cost me a million dollars, 10 engineers to like launch this in a way that had acceptable conversion, acceptable fraud rates, and kept me compliant. And so we saw that and said, like, okay, I think there is really something here. The early version of the product Actually, still isn't that different from now, but it was really like just an API. We didn't have a whole bunch of software around it like we do now. We've yep. really expanded it in all these ways. It was just an API. And our premise was we can aggregate all the data that's out there. Right now, you have to go do 10 different integrations yourself into the various databases that exist. We'll just wrap them all into, you know, sort of like a checker value prop. Yep. And 10 different commercial agreements as well. And 10 different right. commercial agreements. Yep. That's right. And so we will take that pain away and we'll just be an aggregator. We're kind of just pipes to data. And initially, actually, that worked well because people didn't trust us yet. They didn't know who we were. We were this like nothing, nobody company. And so it worked because they didn't have to trust us to make the decision for them. They didn't have to trust our judgment. They just had to trust that we were pipes to data that they wanted to act. We were just a, a wrapper. And so the very early days, that is sort of what we went to market with. Slowly... I'm seeing a little bit of fraud over here. How can you help me do that? Or I want to adjust the threshold of this. And so we then we really built out the full orchestration platform in the subsequent you know months and years. 
And we validated this with our early sets of customers. So again, early, it was like early stage startups. We had um, an early lending company, a payments company. Yes, we were lucky to have some early customers like Brex and Marketo, who at the time were earlier stage companies and trying to grow. And so we really validated that using an API like Alloy, aggregating in a whole bunch of different data services and building workflows that lets you really control how you use those data services and rules will let you have higher conversion which and lower fraud, which when you're growing becomes really important. And then we started validating this with banks. So I think when we started the company, we had no idea what banks did. We thought like they must yeah. have figured this out. It's just a problem for fintech companies. In fact, probably no surprise now, banks are even more behind than fintech companies in thinking about how to safely and seamlessly onboard people. And we started working at first with Radius Bank. They were a great first bank customer for us because they took the user experience really seriously and they were trying to grow their own digital bank as well as partner with yeah. fintech companies. They were just really forward thinking. And so that really helped us understand what a bank would need from a solution like Alloy. They just needed a lot more stuff. Yeah. And it was great because we were able to extend the value of Alloy and also deprecate some existing legacy solutions that weren't very good. Yeah. And so we started working increasingly with those types of partner banks, fintech banks, kind of digitally focused community banks. And we still work with them today. They've been a great segment for us. Yeah. I want to talk more about how the go-to-market has evolved, starting first with these early adopters in fintech to then early adopters in banks. I think building any company is hard. I think building a fintech company is hard. I think building a fintech infrastructure company can be one of the hardest things to do. You've said in the past, I guess, you know, like the first four years were hard. So like, what was it that was hard? Yeah. I think it was great you had this MVP. You could wrap some APIs. You didn't have to build everything from the ground up. But it's still not easy to go out and launch infrastructure and financial services. Had I known it was so hard, I never would have done it. So I'm glad we were sort of living in ignorant bliss at the time. We thought like, we'll wrap a few of these APIs and we'll launch. We didn't know about SOC 2 audits. We didn't know that each of these data partners, like if you work with Experian or LexisNexis, they have to audit you. You have to have a paper shredder in your office to meet these. You know, there's just these like kind of yeah. mundane, silly things and some real things too, right, that are critical about data security. We had to be well capitalized, for example, to win certain clients. We weren't well capitalized, right? So you're in this kind of chicken and egg cycle. And so we had four years of occasional small wins, but just a lot of bad news, didn't make a lot of traction with customers. We knew there was something there, but there also wasn't a really robust fintech market at the time. If you sort of think about those years, 2015 to 2019, I think consumer fintech was probably at a low relative to the subsequent couple of years. Yeah, it was actually kind of a consumer winner, which is crazy because it's like, wait, wasn't there just a huge consumer boom? But Lending Club went public in like 09, maybe even a little bit earlier. Their market cap peaked at 10 billion. I think the alt lending boom and bust really soured people on fintech. And especially some consumer fintech. And Lending Club went from being worth about $10 billion at peak in the early teens to worth a few hundred million dollars, like around 2015 when you were starting. And that's when all these neobanks that then got large in the 2020s started to take off, like people who could become big customers of yours. But at that point, they're still very small, and you're still building and figuring things out. Exactly. There was the fintech winter. We were starting out then. A lot of other companies were too, but there wasn't anyone to really sell to, or there were very few. Yeah. But we didn't know that. We didn't think about it. There was crypto, the first kind of wave of crypto, yep. 
which helped us validate. That was actually some of our initial traction was with some of those early wallets and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then as time went on, you know, 2018, I think things felt like they might start changing. Consumer fintech started getting funded a little bit. We started seeing banking as a service and embedded fintech come along, which was yep. a first, obviously. And we saw more platforms pop up. 2018, we also started talking to a very large bank. And so towards the end of the year, we were like, something's maybe happening. I think it was March of 2019, we signed Ally Bank, and that was sort of life-changing for us. And at the same time, we'd seen some of those early customers like Brex really grow by that point. So then we'd had these kind of proof points that three years before, no one knew who that company was. We could go to investors and go, okay, they're generating significant amounts of revenue for us. And so it was fall of 2019 that we raised our Series A, feeling like, okay, this is like, this is going to be a real company. Or at least it's going to be a real company for the next two years. <laughs> I think that's the, true for a lot of infrastructure companies where you kind of have this slow burn, you have these early adopters, and then one day you end up with some big customers and all of a sudden that provides a lot of validation, a lot of momentum, ability yeah. to invest in product and go to market. And that's actually what I want to talk about next is as things started working, how did your go-to-market change? In 2018, 2019, there was, on the fintech side, at least a shift from it being just me trying to do as much outbound as I possibly can, a lot of cold emails, yeah. some of which were successful, to some inbound, right? We actually started getting a little bit of inbound, and I think that was both, we'd had a few case studies and kind of a little bit of you know success in the market, but also just more fintech companies were getting funded all of a sudden. They needed a KYC API to go live. We also then, with banks starting to use us, we developed some channel partnerships that were really critical. So our first one was Mantle. It was great because they were sort of the same stage company as us. We've always kind of like grown up together. And Mantle being the deposit account opening solution for banks. Correct. So what's great is we figured out sort of like, here's how we fit into the stack at a bank. A bank has a core banking system, pain to integrate into, but Mantle does that part. They do the deposit account opening. We slide in there. So they integrate with our solution for the account opening process, paying our API, we return the response, et cetera. And that just worked really well. They were starting to grow and work with a number of community banks. They were able to differentiate themselves because of our solution. So they could say, you're going to have great onboarding, right? Like two and a half minute onboarding relative to whatever you're doing today. And we just started seeing more and more banks, community banks especially, that were trying to compete nationally, right? So they might have just had their brick and mortar be quite regional with 10, 20, 30 branches. Mm -hmm. And they're seeing going digital as a way for them to reach a national audience for the first time. And then compete in a very dog-eat-dog market where we're seeing banks just get, there's just major consolidation going on. This is their chance to actually compete, either doing this themselves or partnering with fintech companies. And so they were starting to work with a number of these digital account opening platforms that we would then get slotted into. And so now we still work with a number of them, and that's been great for us. So our go-to-market is heavily partnerships-oriented when it comes to banking. For large banks, we tend to go direct- they tend to build some more of their own account opening solutions. Yep, absolutely. So the things that change the go-to-market, one, just brand awareness, driving inbound. Two, starting to build out a dedicated sales org and function, which I think is a classic stage. And then three, and this is one that I'm, 
I think is so interesting for a lot of fintech companies is the channel partnership side of things to get distribution through, in your case, Mantle deposit account openings. It makes sense to do these partnerships because these things are hard to build. That's always my pitch. I'm like, you don't want to do this. This stuff is boring and hard. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it started happening on fintech too, because we saw banking as a service platforms get created and grow in, you know, 2018, 2019, 2020. You saw Unit Finance, Treasury Prime, like all these great companies get started then. And so the same thing is happening from a partnerships perspective there, although they look different, obviously, and the end clients are vastly different. But we really leaned heavily on those. I think we're now at an interesting point where a lot of those have grown. And we're reaching this point where some of the fintech companies need to figure out if they're going to graduate from those platforms or not. Those platforms being the banking as a service providers. So they would still, presumably, you think they should still be using Alloy, but maybe they should be using Alloy directly as part of a direct bank relationship as opposed to one mediated by BAS platforms. That's right. And there's plenty of relationships where they will still use Alloy directly, even if they are partnered with one of our partners. It's more that at certain level, they want more control over things. And what we're seeing more acutely, though, is this challenge. I've heard this from a bunch of founders recently, where you now need your banking as a service platform, you need your processor, you need your fraud or KYC API tool like Alloy, whoever else you're using, you need your bank partner. You need to have your tech stack. And who you choose for one affects the other, who plays nicely with each other, who is on each other's latest versions, who lets you have some degree of control. I'm convinced we will have to grapple as an industry with how we as vendors all work together to create really good experience for fintech companies. Because I think it was great to get started, but I think we're at the point where we're now like, okay, we've really got to work on delivering the best experience, not just the get started experience. It's like the optimize things experience. And I'm not sure we've nailed that. Or I know we haven't nailed it because I hear from founders all the time. And it's definitely a big open question because I frame this as integrating down the stack. Usually if you're a big company, at time, things lower level that you didn't want to get involved in all of a sudden become incredibly relevant. So an example like Apple. Apple now designs their own silicon. They make their own chips. There was a time when that did not make any sense for Apple. Apple as a you know multi-trillion dollar company designing their own chips makes a lot of sense because it tightly integrates the hardware, the software, the product. And the same thing's happening in fintech. You get these companies that get to massive scale. And the question is, do I need to go down and start caring at a very granular level about how my infrastructure operates? That didn't matter when I was in growth mode and smaller. And it'll be interesting to see what parts of the stack stay and what parts go. And I think that's a really interesting question to talk about. I'm going to be following for the next few years. And leads to the next question I wanted to address, which is how has your change in the go-to-market as well as changes in the ecosystem generally started to change your product and your product roadmap? And what are you doing today that's different than what you used to do? There's good and bad things that the last couple of years have brought. And some are you know, bad for the industry and then sort of tailwinds for us. So one of the big ones is fraud. Fraud has just exacerbated in the last two years or so, starting with COVID, but just gotten worse and worse. And so we're at this point where we're seeing banks and fintech companies get inundated with fraud and have to shut down, like really have to face this choice of, do I continue my business? Do I grow my business and like open up my funnel or do I incur a bunch of fraud? And that choice is really hard. There's obviously ways to fight it. We've been 
critical for a lot of our clients in figuring out how to react really quickly. So one of the keys is just like be able to act instantly. You can't go to your engineering team and put in a three-week sprint to add a new data source to stop fraud. You have to be able to do it in real time. These things happen. We have sort of like fraud war rooms that will run on weekends because it's like it'll just happen and we have to deal with it instantly. And so you have to be able to do that quickly. The best user experience we can deliver is instant payments also will now mean instant fraud. So the problem's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. And you guys have always been an API, but now you're actually a lot more than an API because you have to help clients react to changes in real time. So you're not just a product or an API, you're also a solutions company and you, to some extent, help with the managing of that solution. That's right. That was really one of the I think the revelations early was, as I mentioned, when we started, we were just pipes to data because people said, like, I don't trust you guys. Yeah. Just get me the data. I don't want your judgment, your opinion. And that really changed pretty quickly. As we got smarter, we developed expertise and we productized that as well for our clients. I think for a long time, tech companies are like, oh, I'll just do this myself. I like know how to and I, I know tech. I'm smart. And then they learn like, oh man, this is really hard. But for banks especially, they already know like I need more of a managed solution. That's right. That's actually one of the great things about working with banks is they know what they don't know. It's a little bit harder on the fintech side, especially really smart, really sophisticated teams who've seen a lot of fraud, but you still are only seeing your fraud. And also there's going to be a new synthetic fraud model that comes out next year. And like you need to be able to yeah. understand how to integrate it and how to use it. And so we do all of that. We got a lot smarter. And so that's been easier for yeah. us to get involved. And you know, our clients' teams rely on us to be a thought partner for them, bring them new solutions, bring them suggestions immediately, how to stop fraud, how to change your funnel. And yeah. that's been great. That's been the sort of silver lining of all of this. The other thing that's really changed is I think we as ourselves and the industry have gone from thinking about onboarding, especially as sort of like a one-time event, to a continuous process, right? It's not just like moment one, I'm checking recs and I'm going, yep, all this looks good. New name, address. Okay, you've entered, you've gone through the door, do whatever you want. It's not one time. It's continuous. And so we started building out in reaction to that the ways for our clients to assess, monitor, and action, you know, decision at various points in a client life cycle. You call this progressive onboarding would be one way of framing it. Progressive, perpetual, yeah, graduated, a lot of different names. But it's smart for fraud, right? Like just because you looked good then doesn't mean you look good three months later. And particularly as customers go through different steps, so you do your onboarding, you get access to the account, but then you're going to do things like you're going to link an account, right? You're going to do plaid, you're going to link another account. That's when a lot of fraud happens. PII changes, another huge moment for fraud. So there are these things that happen and they're very heightened in the first 60 to 90 days after an account is opened that we believe merit a continuous approach. Yep. And so that's really where we've extended the life cycle, both from a compliance perspective and a fraud perspective, where we now support the onboarding is just step zero. There's a whole life after that. Yeah. And I'm sure in part you were pulled there by your customers who were having problems. They're like, hey, can you help us with this next thing? Another area you've been pulled by your customers is from doing just consumer to business. Mantle is a channel partner, and you now help them, I believe, open business accounts. So that's another growth area. But I would love to talk maybe first or primarily also about, sounds like you're expanding internationally, again, in mm-hmm. part because of the pull from customers. And we've been talking a lot on this podcast about the how default global and the internationalization of financial services is a big trend in the ecosystem. So we'd love to understand Alloy's perspective on what it's looked like to go international. Yeah, we saw a couple of our 
clients who were growing maybe a year or a half ago, two years ago, come to us and say, look, I use Alloy because I never have to go add another data source myself. I never have to do a bunch of engineering work to change some thresholds. But now moving into another market, can you support me there? And so for us, it was a natural extension and sort of like to stay true to our value prop. I think we had to deliver that solution, at least in the core markets where you really saw people expanding. And so that's what we've been working on, pulled by some of our largest fintech clients who are growing there and we could support them pretty easily. I shouldn't say easily. We still have to go, you have to go do all this groundwork (laughs) to figure out what are the compliance requirements in that market. You have to understand sort of the local context, local regulations, and then the data sources, right? Just like in the US, there's no single data source that covers everything everywhere. And so you do have to go in this sort of patchwork puzzle approach. And that's what we do. We do that legwork of going and finding and integrating all the data sources you need in any given market. It's a you know step-by-step kind of yep. laborious process of doing all that work. And then we subsequently also saw, no surprise, Europe and the UK really start to develop real fintech ecosystems. Obviously, London's had one for a while, but they really started going multinational, right? Where you might have yep. your UK office, but your default day one in three or four or five other markets. And so we have a team in London led by Edwina Johnson. Yeah, you opened your office last year, right? 2022, you opened the London office. We moved Edwina over last year, and then we built out the team towards the end of last year, early this year. So we now have a team of folks there on the ground in London who are working with our UK and European clients. Yep. And so international for now means a lot of Europe. Are you getting pulled into other geographies as well, or is that a lot earlier? Largely Europe, Australia, and then we're just evaluating other markets. We've just anecdotally seen a lot of action in Latin America. We don't have unlimited resources. We want to be focused, but we're trying to pay attention to where folks are growing into or where real fintech ecosystems are developing. So... To some extent, you know, the pandemic has been a boon because of the internationalization of a lot of things happening in technology and allowing you to grow. But now we've also been through a big, or are in the middle of potentially, maybe it's coming to an end, uh, tech contraction. I'm curious how that has impacted your business. Yeah. So we're not immune to it, as you can imagine. We have half of our clients are fintech companies, half are banks. Fintech has suffered the last year or so, and that's been really hard. We're lucky in a few ways. So one is that we have banks for half our business. They pay their bills. They sign three to five-year contracts. They are doing well in this kind of interest rate environment. They want deposits. So we've actually remained really healthy as a result of that. On the fintech side, the couple of kind of silver linings I would call out are one, fraud. Again, just like getting worse, not better. And so we've been really critical, I think, for folks where We were already critical infrastructure, but now we're potentially more important as you need to combat fraud. Fraud was, I think, a couple of years ago viewed as like a cost of doing business. And now that unit economics matter a lot more, fraud affects you a lot more. So does conversion rates, right? Like you have to think about how many people you're paying for to get to them to the top of the funnel and how many are coming out of that. And so something like Alloy becomes more important. You have to focus there a lot more if you're going to raise your next round of funding. And then the other one I would say has been big is teams are getting cut. Engineering teams are getting sliced and diced. And where we potentially used to compete against build versus buy, there's a lot less of that. You don't have the choice to build anymore. You need your developer resources focused on your core differentiated product, et cetera, not doing this KYC thing, I fraud thing that like someone else does. So that's actually been great for us. 
And then the last note that I want to touch on is just a question I asked of all of our founders, because we have a lot of people in the audience who are operators at fintech companies or founders, and it's what kind of advice you have for people who are thinking about setting out and starting something on their own. On one hand, it's like, oh, tech is falling apart. Maybe now is a terrible time to start something. You went in uh, <laughs> back when there was a little bit of a consumer fintech winner, you know, worked really hard for four years before you got things working. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on building and starting something in the current climate. No, I think it's a little bit trite, but I think we all know some of the best companies have come out of dark times or fintech winters or tech winters. And so yeah. don't let that stop you. It is harder to raise money. It's harder to do a lot, but you're going to be better for it. Like I, I really believe that going through four years of what was a really hard time made us a lot better on the other side. As people, as founders, as a company, it just really built up resilience, thicker skin, all this stuff that I think has served us really well. I would say, besides the obvious, conserve cash right now. That's my other piece of advice. Pay attention to your customers. Like One of the things we did really well, and I'll give full credit to my co-founder here, Tommy, who I don't think he could help himself. He was just obsessed with some of our customers. Like They'd be paying us $100 a month, and he would spend four hours a week with them <laughs> because he was just obsessed with their problems and how we could fix their problems. And I think that's more important now in an environment like this where you may not have that many customers and you may not be able to bring on that many customers, but like keep the ones you have, keep them really happy. For us, it helped us to have just, we didn't have a ton of customers. We had a few who thought we were game changing for them. And that can be enough to get you to the next round or to the next five customers. I really believe in the like, don't worry about scalable things thing. This is basically YC's advice. They have their list of like 20 yeah. things. And one of them is do things that don't scale, which is related often to customer obsession because you're doing things that don't scale with respect to taking care of early customers. It surprised me how long that has stayed true. I do that today at Alloy still. There are plenty of things we do that are not scalable, but I think are critical to get to the just the next step. Do not worry about scale. Don't worry about yeah. pricing either. There are things that come later. I think investors love to give the opposite advice, and I think they're generally wrong. A lot of the types of companies I end up backing are one or two founders who've maybe just gotten together. They haven't written a single line of code. They've talked to a bunch of customers, and they yeah. kind of have LOIs before they've even started the company. And if you can sell a product that doesn't exist, it's probably a decent product. You need to make sure you know how to build it. <laughs> and so I really like people who go out and are obsessed with their customers from day one, basically kind yes. of pre-sell it, and then go out and build it. And I think also what's great about this environment, why it's actually not necessarily as risky as it used to be to start a company, is that you know, you've got AWS for cloud, you've got AI tools that make it cheaper to actually do coding and to build workflow software. There are all these layoffs, but that means it's easier for you, new company, to hire. It's so true. <laughs> and there's still plenty of capital at the pre-seed and seed. If you look at those numbers, those numbers are very, very stable. So everything you hear about it being hard to raise, 100% true is still true because it's never easy, even at the earliest stage, but it's as easy as it's ever been. Whereas it's close to as hard as it's ever been if you're Series B and beyond. It's a great point. I used to keep a CRM, like a fake CRM, basically, of prospects I would talk to with no product. We had like a really crappy demo I would show them. And then I kept a CRM, and it was great for fundraising because I'd be like, look at all these people who want to buy this. And it was great for showing other prospects, like, look at all your peers <laughs> who want to buy this product that doesn't exist. So I was obsessed yeah. with that, and I probably did 50 or 60 of those. 
probably zero of those actually end up becoming real customers because it probably took us way too long to have a product we could sell them. But it was a very useful tool and really validated that this was a need. Yeah, yeah, totally. And probably don't go to law school would be your other other bit of advice. If you, you don't need to do that if you want to start yeah. something. Be so. really sure you want to go to law school. <laughs> Sorry to the lawyers who are listening. But Laura, thanks so much for coming on. This has been awesome. It's been great to hear about you know, everything from your internship, doing microfinance, to defending white-collar criminals, it turns out, to building a fintech infrastructure company. So thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for watching. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe. Thanks so much, and I hope to catch you next time.